This episode is dedicated to Roxanne Gay, who taught us to find joy in the darkness. And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. good i'm excited to go to target and get my bar stools or look at bar stools i don't know if i'm actually gonna buy them today but yeah that's the kind of boring adult i am now <laughs> that's okay i'm the type of adult who can't drink without getting sick so uh, it's just a hazard <laughs> of getting old you know okay sacrifice of darkness hello everyone welcome back to rebel girls book club today we're talking about the sacrifice of darkness by roxanne gay <laughs> Oh, and it's a much cheerier book than our last book. Yeah, it is a much cheerier. It's like a, it's still a dark story, but it's not as like angry making. There's like a very sweet element to it. It is very sweet. That's part of why I chose this story because I'm in the mood right now for sweetness and idyllicness. And though this is a very sad story, like it's the sort of like, it represents the sort of love I aim to have in my life. That's real. I also really enjoyed uh, the magical realism aspect to it. Me Although too. I do think it made it difficult for me to think about it in like a literary terms, not in the sense that like magical realism or fantasy or anything is like less literary, like has less literary merit. That's not something I believe. But for me, I was so focused on like trying to figure out the magical realism aspect of it that like I found myself it was harder for me to focus on like really critiquing this one in the same way I'm sometimes able to do with more just kind of like straight lit fic, you know? I understand that. It has been a week since I've read this, so I can't remember how hard it was for me to critique, but- Your notes are a lot better than mine, so- (laughs) Are they really? All the questions are yours, I think, doesn't it? Aren't they? They are, but like a lot of my questions are just kind of like, I don't know what to make of this. (laughs) usually when i take notes i like have an idea of what i'm actually gonna say i have a lot of open-ended questions about this story but i think that's also part of the point of the story to a certain extent i understand that yeah i agree i think it has some similar themes to the story that we just talked about one of the things that i picked up on on the first page was that it's a story about blue collar i mean it's not about blue collar masculinity but as roxanne gay does with many stories in this book she is focusing on a very particular lifestyle and this one happens to be like and she does this throughout all of the united states this one does happen to take place it seems in like a mining town and it's focusing on the lifestyle that comes with blue collar masculinity and i think that's interesting because we just talked about white privileged masculinity in the south i don't know it just seems interesting especially coming today in 2019 when I at least have a better understanding of these different types of lifestyles in the U.S. 
that contribute to things like President Trump becoming president. Not that mostly blue collar workers voted for him or anything, but like people just being dissatisfied with the country as a whole. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think that something interesting about this one that we didn't see in Noble Things last week is that there's very much a um, super realistic dichotomy here between people uh, who are living more towards poverty and the very, very, very rich having control. Like this story is, it's about a lot of things, but I think one of its major themes is, is looking at class disparity and the kinds of power and control you have depending on like what class you're in, which I found really interesting throughout this. I did too. I also, I don't know how much you can talk about this, but on a personal level, the themes of depression really resonated with me. Depression isn't something that I, I, I mean, I've had depression, but it's not something I really experienced in my life in the sort of clinical depression way. There were other sorts of mental health uh, issues that I was exposed to, but depression wasn't one of them. And that's something I found more as a young adult and like experienced through other people. And the themes of depression that come up in this story seem very similar to the sort of depression that I found through young men. I associated with. Yeah, I, I can see that. I didn't really think about, I mean, like, I thought about the aspects of uh, depression throughout this because depression specifically related to, like, one's work and general life status mm-hmm. is kind of the catalyst for the events of this story, which I promise we will actually tell you what the story is about eventually. But. Oh, yeah, we forgot to do that. <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> Sorry. Bear with us. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Ashley. And I'm Justine. And And we we make make up the Cutaways Cutaways Podcast. We're watching the good, the bad, and the essentials of the romantic comedy genre. So far, we've fallen in love with Cary Grant, met up with our terrible friend, pal Joey, and had the desire to run our fingers through Patrick Dempsey's hair. Join our slumber party for your ears every other week, brought to you in stereo from our blanket fort in Hollywood, California. You can find and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Our digital blanket fort can be found at thecutaways.com. If you are the social butterfly types, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as at Cutaways Podcast. Bye! All right. (laughs) This book is about a miner named Hiram Hightower who gets very sad because he lives in darkness all the time because he's doing a lot of mining work. And he takes his plane he, he rents a plane, a red plane, and he flies into the sun because he wants to feel its warmth. And by flying into the sun, the sun disappears. And then, yes. And the stories follows the point of view of a little girl who ends up becoming Hiram Hightower's son's wife. And she's telling the story. And it follows his son and his, his wife, Hiram's wife. And the aftermath of what happens once the sun is gone from the earth. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, I think that's like a really good synopsis. Like essentially we we focus mostly on the story of Hiram's son and daughter-in-law as she's kind of explaining why they are facing hardships. Because a, a really important part of the story is that the people of the town are you know, extremely upset that the sun is gone, understandably, but they take 
out all of that anger and upset and frustration on the high tower family so mara and joshua yeah i think it's joshua high tower yeah it's joshua so they they take it out on mara and joshua so we're like seeing this really interesting look at like discrimination essentially and just kind of like pure unbridled hatred toward people who had really nothing to do ultimately with what happened right like Hira makes this decision by himself to to fly into the sun he probably didn't anticipate actually stealing it you know it wasn't like he was going up there with malintention or anything he was just trying to feel better within himself but his entire family ends up paying the price for it because not only does the sun go away but they are completely ostracized yes they are completely ostracized. And that's why the woman who tells the story, what's her first name? Do we ever, Mara? No, Mara's his mom. No, Mara's the mother. I don't think we ever know what her name is. We might at the point in which she asks her to marry him. But anyway, she is the only person who ends up befriending Joshua, Huron's son. And so, I don't know, it's just a beautiful story about like overcoming that adversity together and about kindness. And yeah. I wanted to get, I wanted to talk a little bit about the theme that you picked up on with both of the stories we've covered in this book, selfishness, because I don't read it as strongly in this story. And so I wanted to hear your perspective on it. I don't read it as strongly in this story either. I think that um, something I read is that there's a perception that the father was being selfish. Like, uh, I don't think that he actually was right like i don't think that people who are experiencing depression or mental health issues in any ways are being selfish but i think that there's a perception from the townspeople and like a um like underlying theme that they believe he was being selfish that like there was a premeditated act to steal the sun from them in order to like fix himself and that's never explicitly stated throughout the story but like the more you see interactions between joshua and his wife and the townspeople you kind of like understand that that's an underlying belief that they have about the situation, which I think is a really interesting critique about the way that we treat mental health in our society anyways, um, because there are a lot of people out there who believe that, um, you know, that like people experiencing mental health issues end up acting selfishly um, when in fact they're really just kind of like suffering, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a lot of go. I, I think there's a lot of metaphor going on in this story, but I think that Hiram High Towers plunge into the sun is a very clear. I mean, it's not even really a metaphor because it is suicide, but it's it's a very clear metaphor for the aftermath of when somebody kills themselves, and that is a perception that we see that killing yourself is selfish. Yeah, absolutely. The gay does a really beautiful job of making us understand what Hiram's going through and making him a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really interesting because as we were talking about before our technical difficulties, uh, <laughs> Hiram is a blue-collar worker, and he's an, you know a middle-aged man when this occurs. And I don't know what the statistics are now, but I know just a few years ago, like when we were in college... And um, shortly after the recession in 2011, there were a lot of high-numbered suicides from men, middle-aged men. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with losing their jobs. But I feel like the sort of work 
Hiram Hightower does probably is also a high suicide place, a high suicide mm-hmm. field, because it is really grueling and very dark, and um, yeah. it's dangerous for health reasons, and yeah, I don't know. I th- I thought something that was really interesting was the way that Gay was able to use the mind both as the cause for Hiram's depression, but also as a metaphor for it as well. Yeah. The mine is like, like it's directly correlated with the reason why he's depressed, but the way Hiram describes it before he stops speaking, which is something I also want to dive into, yeah. it's like this really beautiful, obviously tragic, but very poignant metaphor for like what depression, you know, feels like. And I thought that it was just very masterfully done the way she describes it. Why don't we read that passage if we can find it yeah sorry i'm i've i'm a little distracted because i'm trying to figure out if we actually do learn the main character's name and we don't okay (laughs) she's unnamed she is well i mean i think that's kind of purposeful though because the story is about her but it's also not about her yeah you know Something changed in here and when he turned 40 he had always been a quiet man but on his birthday he became silent All he could think about each night was how sooner than he could bear he would have to go back down into the cold, thin air and the cramped tunnels and the dirt falling into his eyes and nose and mouth, choking him, breaking him. At night, Mara stretched herself along her husband, trying to coax a word from his lips, but he could not give her the one thing she needed from him. She started to forget the sound of his voice. He still went to work, still clawed through the earth, still filled rusty hearts with the precious, shiny metals greedier men craved. There was no joy in it, though, not at all. It became harder and harder for him to stand tall or take a deep breath. Oh my god. Damn capitalism. Oh, that strikes, that strikes well. So yeah, in this passage, we do see the mine as this dark, oppressive force. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that something really interesting is how it focuses so much on like the air and how it's like very cold and thin, how it's like physically difficult to be a person down there. And I think that's really interesting because it, it, I thought that was interesting as a metaphor because many people who experience depression have symptoms of the fact that it's hard to get quote unquote like the bare minimum done. Like it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to, you know, do basic hygiene things and it's impossible to do those things. And I thought that that was a really beautiful metaphor for that because breathing is in many ways for many people like the easiest thing. But when you're in that cloud, right, even the quote unquote easiest things are suddenly impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And I And I think that that also ties into the fact that he becomes silent, too. Yeah, he just stops talking until until he talks about wanting to touch the sun. Do you think, and I don't know how important it is to the larger story, but do you think Hiram, I mean, we know that he probably didn't know he was going to grab the sun, but was it a suicide mission? I don't know. I think that it's left purposefully kind of ambiguous. And that was one of the things that I was struggling to figure out my opinions about in the story. I think that yes, in the sense that obviously you can't actually, you know, touch the sun or fly an airplane up there. But then at the same time, like the magical realism element of the story does make that true, right? Like he does go and he does touch the sun. And I think that something I find interesting about that is he thinks that going to touch the sun is going to make him better, Like, he doesn't talk about it as, like, the end of things sort of thing. He talks about it almost as a new beginning, which makes me think that it was potential, like, that his 
disappearance at the very least. I mean, it's never truly stated that he dies. You just kind of infer that from the fact that he never comes back. So I feel like that was an unintended consequence, right? Because he talks about it as a way to make things better for himself. Do you think, though, that that could also, I mean, I think, I don't know, right? I think it but, could also be a, a, a like metaphor for suicide, though, in yeah, that way. Because a lot of the times when people want to do, like, when they want, when suicide becomes attractive to people is just, it's an end of pain. It's not mm -hmm. usually... I don't know. I think, yeah, I think that it's hard because she leaves it very ambiguous in that way, you know? And I think that that makes the story more powerful is that, like, you don't really know or understand what's happening in his mind, partially because he doesn't, he does he can't tell you, you know? We get a little bit from his perspective, but this story is actually divided into five parts and the story of Hiram actually, the story, the part of the story where Hiram actually goes to the sun takes like three pages so we see very little of his actual point of view i don't know i just think the story is just so brilliant <laughs> I, it's a really pretty story everyone should read it but like i think it's brilliantly done partially for all of these like ambiguous things and i think that that also is a really important metaphor for suicide is that like the people excuse me who left behind often feel like they don't have answers or things like that. I don't know. So like, I, I think that, yes, you could be correct, but I also don't think, I think that it was purposefully left open enough so that we can't say for sure, like, yeah, that was his intention, you know? Yeah. I also think it's interesting that the sun doesn't disappear right away. What, what did you make of that? Like, it flashes red and then it slowly becomes darker and darker. So... I don't, I don't know what that would be a metaphor for, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> I don't know either. I mean, I kind of, I think, read it as the idea of, well, it ties back to page 193 where Hiram's like buying his airplane mm -hmm. and he says, it was an ugly thing, the air machine he bought. There was no grace to it, but he loved the color, a bright red that would make the sky pretty. So for me, I kind of just tied those th two things together in the sense that like, what he wanted occurred in that sense. Like, it was a bright red that made the sky pretty, and then it went away, you know? Which is kind of selfless in a way, right? Like, he's he's not going to be the one that sees it. But it sounds like he wants other people to have a pretty sight. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting, too, but, like, I didn't I didn't really cling on to it more more than just from that correlation. Okay. Well, let's let's dive into part one, though, because there are a lot of questions that you've had that I don't feel like we've talked about. Do you want to talk about some of them? I think that one of the more important ones is the idea of the concept of women who love hard men, which is not just in this specific story, although it does call it out specifically that, like, Mara was a woman who loved a hard man. Yeah. But, like, it comes through in a lot of Roxanne Gay's stories here. But I think it's interesting because that was – I wrote these questions – I'm trying to think. When I first read this whole short story collection, it was, like, maybe a, a, a year ago-ish, and – I was struck by that, but, like, when I reread the story specifically to take notes for it, I was actually struck by the fact that, yes, in part one, we're setting up this whole woman who love hard men thing, 
But actually, throughout the rest of the story, we don't see that. We see a very difficult kind of relationship because Joshua Hightower is in a lot of ways very different from his father. Yeah. Partially because they don't have the same job and things like that. But I just think that like this, it's very interesting to me. No, I agree. I think that the way that I picked up on it when reading, I I think when we're talking about Hiram being a hard man, we're talking about him just being kind of like a very traditionally masculine man, but I don't think it's necessarily toxic masculinity. No, definitely not. I think he's just kind of gruff, and I think it plays more into that blue collarness. And we do know when we meet Joshua and he starts to grow up that he has some of the same characteristics. Like, he's similarly big. And Mara, who is Hiram's wife, she does love him, but, like, what she loves about him, she loves that he can be both, like, hard and gentle. And she loves that, like, they have rough sex. That's stated. Because even though she's a very small man, she likes that he knows that she's strong. And there's maybe some gendered problematic stuff within that, but I found it to be... It's not harming anyone in this instance. And, like, it is kind of sweet. Like, everyone has their own kinks, I guess. To me, it was just kind of like, um, this is what this person is attracted to. I thought it was interesting, though, just because there were certain things. So, like, it's explicitly... On page 190, the way that it's that this concept is described is um, the narrator is talking about the fact that sometimes in the mines he would find beautiful things and he would bring them back for Mara. And the narrator says, those crystal formations were the only beautiful things he gave to his wife other than their child. So she treasured them in the way of women who love hard men, which I thought was really interesting. That like there's part of Hiram that seems held back almost in a certain way but I also totally agree with what you're saying like it's also said on 191 it's very explicit he wasn't gentle when he touched her but he was a good man he touched her the way that she wanted to be touched she loved how he knew there was strength in her too which is totally what you were talking about. Yeah. So I think that this is interesting because I think that there's a commentary in the way that, yeah, this very specific kind of masculinity can work really well in relationships. But like, I think there also, I think it plays on that idea of strength in the wife as well, that like Mara's a strong woman, but she also has to be strong because she's not always given a lot of emotional support in that way, you That's know? That's true. Which I think is really, really interesting. And plays also into when he becomes silent in that passage that we read before right like Mara it's expressed that the one thing Mara wanted more than anything was for him to talk to her and he just can't so like we see that kind of strength played through this as well I think something also interesting though that we see with this is the description of Mara loving his hands which I think is kind of a cliche because I think that that's something that like you see a lot in in books that talk about like uh, relationships. Like it's like a, a trope essentially that women are obsessed with man's with men's hands in this way because they are a, a metaphor for something else, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I just I thought it was really interesting because I th- I think that the way they're described in the book plays exactly on this idea of like there's strength there but they can also be gentle and like that balance is like the key to this sort of masculine mindset I guess is what I'm trying to say. I agree I think it's a very deliberate commentary on a specific type 
of masculinity. And I mean, Mara wants to be there for him. She wants to be the type of partner that helps hold him up in a way that our narrator in this story, Kiram's daughter-in-law, kind of holds up Joshua, his son. Mm-hmm. But Mara cannot hold Hiram up because he's not sharing himself with her, which I think is a commentary because men often aren't encouraged to share their feelings or be as in touch with them. But also mm-hmm. because Hiram has to deal with something that maybe Mara can't understand because she hasn't had to deal with it. No one has except for the other minors. Mm-hmm. And Joshua, even though he has hardships, doesn't have that specific institutionalized hardship. And I think also a a point you made that's really interesting about the fact that the only people who can understand Hiram are the minors. Later in the story, when we move into the other parts and we see the after effect, the only people who don't ostracize Mara and Joshua are the other minors in the town. Because they're the only ones who understand where Hiram was coming from and understand where that like decision-made process could come from you know so it becomes really important i think the idea of um like shared experience in these sorts of situations yeah i agree i wrote down duty on page 190 and i don't know why why yeah Um, oh, I think I know why. Okay, do you want to clarify me on what I was thinking? Because I know that was a theme that was very heavily in our other story. <laughs> well, I think that it was just, so in the second paragraph on the middle of the page, on page 190, there's like a, a talk about Mara's duty, I think, to hear him. Like, she cooks dinner for him every single night, and and like he always sits down with her, but she sits with him patiently. She sits through his silence. She pretends that everything is okay to a certain extent and like i think that that implies like the certain a certain kind of duty like a uh, within marital relationships do we want to talk about that like what how is that different from the duty that we were looking at before and are they both problematic in this case is it just something you do for somebody you love because it, it the difference here i think very clearly is that it's a choice, right? Mara doesn't have to do that, but she's choosing to do these things because she wants her partner to be okay and she just wants to make his life easier. It's less, like, put on by society versus our other main character in the last story we read, which was called... Noble Things. Noble Things, yep. (laughs) You know, his duty was put on to him by his father and he despised it. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting because a lot of the duty that we saw in that story was, to a certain extent, shared between the husband and the wife. But you're right, a lot of the, like, duty that we are, that we saw there was really, like, brought down from familial ties. Whereas Mm -hmm. the duty here, I mean, I think it's kind of hard to say, right? Like, in that story, it very much was societally imposed because of all of those, like, laws and the codes of conduct and really being based in tradition. But I also think that there is a certain level of societal duty here in the sense that, like, the best way she knows how to support him is to, like, fall into those really, like, wifely roles and things like that. And it does make you wonder if, like, if either of them could have broken out of kind of those like traditionally societally ascribed roles, like both of what we talked about with the idea that like men are conditioned to not talk about their feelings and things like that. And like Mara potentially being able to utilize different techniques potentially to like 
help him cope with those things instead of just falling into like kind of housewife quote unquote like yeah would things have been different and things like that i mean they but may I, have been i yeah. just i think it's interesting too though because like the other story we were talking about family duty but it wasn't it was a cold family. It wasn't a family bonded by love. And throughout this story, we do see different types of duty, but it's always motivated by, like, kindness. And love, for sure. And love. I mean, at least with our protagonists, not necessarily with outside society. The outside society tries to push duty onto various characters, but they go against that. And instead, they uphold a different type of duty. Yeah, To be happy. For sure. Yeah. I totally agree. So you mentioned nostalgia. Do you want to talk about that? I do want to talk about that, but let me remember what I meant by that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So a large part of this story is nostalgia for the way that things used to be and how nostalgia is both a good and a bad thing. And I think that you see that very clearly in parts two through five. So like part two opens up um, by saying... I grew up in a valley flanked by two hills, some called mountains. We weren't much used to the sun anyway. That's what we tell ourselves now that the sun has been gone so long. So, like, the narrator is opening up her kind of, like, nostalgia for what things used to be like before. And that comes up again and again and again. Because a large, the actual, like, plot arc of this story outside of this, like, family drama is essentially throughout the like decades since this has happened there becomes a council of essentially all of the richest men in the like town who are trying to figure out how to bring the sun back because it's like all kind of based in nostalgia for the way that things used to be and in greed for the way that things used to be the rich men stop sending miners down because of what happened and they kind of want to be able to start doing that again. But we also see this like nostalgia for the sun and things like that and the way that society used to be in all of the interactions that the two main characters have with like the outside world. Yes. Even the way the story the story ends is with um, a confrontation between our main character and another woman after things have hashtag spoiler alert started to get better actually and for a reason that's like not fully explained but the sky becomes less dark and the woman is still like unable to kind of appreciate the fact that things are changing and is just like so angry because she just wants things to be the way that they were before and i thought that that was really interesting not just in the sense of like nostalgia being like a powerful thing that can be used for good and can be used for bad but like also reminds me of the way that nostalgia colors the idea of tradition and like wanting to go back to traditional values and stuff like that because things were better back then but were they really yeah and i think that it's important too that the main characters for the most part in this story the lack of stuff like, they, they're they not necessarily nostalgic. Like, they want things to change, but because there is a lack, and we see this on page 194, because there's a lack of sun, it makes everything else, like, it makes what they do have more important and more beautiful. Mm-hmm. So the, the narrator says on page 194, no, I'm sorry, she says on page 193 into page 194, Our town was small, but pretty, or at least that's how I always saw it. Pretty isn't always about what you see. Sometimes pretty is what you feel. Minus the people, our town is still pretty to me. And 
then she also talks about the land being harder, but it also it's also sweeter because it's harder, I think she says. The air is sweeter and the land is harder, but yeah. it's more. Yeah, and like they they go out on the rooftops in the moonlight. That's not in this section, but they just seem to appreciate what they have a lot more, or at least our, our narrator does. And I think that's an important, like, almost moral part of the story, because the way that our narrator and her family, the Hightower family, deals with this loss is just so much healthier in a lot of ways than, like, what we saw in our last story. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I just really liked that. So I think that, yeah, there's there's still some nostalgia, but there's also, like, a romantic view of what is there now that there has been this loss. Absolutely. It's like, like I said, I, I think it's interesting because this story shows, like, two very different views on, like, the way nostalgia can be, you know? And I think you're right. I think it's really nice the way that, like, our main character really appreciates the life she has now. And I think that part of that, it also, like, it also is colored to a certain extent by the very cute love story that, like, comes about between her and Joshua. Oh, it's adorable. Because, like, I think it's I think it's very heavily implied that, like, if all of this hadn't happened, like, she would not have her husband and her family, you know? Because I think another thing that's important about this is that they become friends initially as, like, middle schoolers-ish, because after all of this happens, Joshua is having a really hard time in school, and her mother tells her that, like, she needs to go and be friends with him, which is easier for her in certain ways because she is also kind of ostracized. And she's ostracized for specifically not being essentially, like, the right kind of woman, quote-unquote. Like, she's very different from everyone else. And, like, Joshua sees that about her, and, like, appreciates her for it and loves her for it, whereas everyone else in the town puts her down for it. So, like, through both of these different kinds of adversity, like, these two people come together and, like, form this beautiful little family. It is beautiful. I do want to talk about, though, real quick, just kind of because I think it needs to be talked about. Even though this sto- love, Even though the love story is adorable and beautiful, I do think it could be problematic in that she is... I mean, she's, she's, she's having to be, she's having to bear some of his emotional labor, essentially. Like, she's going out to this sad man and making his life better because it's part of her, I just think that that's a trope that women fall into. And I know, like, that's something I've personally fallen into a few times, (laughs) where, you know, she, she has to go and make this sad man's life better. And I think it's always good to be compassionate, but I think that that's something that we see happen more with women and pe- women feel more obligated. And her mother goes to and tells her, be his friend. But like, it's not necessarily anybody's responsibility to bear the sadness of somebody else. It's nice and it's yeah. good and it's consensual. But I think that I we tell women that it is their responsibility sometimes. I agree. And I think that, an interesting point here is that it shouldn't be any one person's responsibility. It should have been the community's responsibility to not be a fucking asshole to an 11 yeah. year old kid. Yes. You know? Yes. So, like, I totally, I, I completely get where you're coming from. And I think that that's actually really illustrated that, like, the narrator understands that a little bit 
because she talks about the fact that she goes up to him and like she is talking to him and whatever and she's she feels ashamed about the fact that she used to also ignore him and so on from 197 to 198 they have this conversation my father is up there somewhere he said i know he didn't mean to do a bad thing i nodded i know that too joshua turned to look at me why are you talking to me for once, I decided to be comfortable with a small lie, because you look like someone I can talk to. So, like, I think, for me, that line right there really illustrates the fact that the narrator kind of knows that she is gonna, like, help him bear this emotional labor. Yeah. And, like, to a certain extent, it's a conscious choice, but you're right, to a certain extent, it's something that's, like, put on her because her mother is a kind-hearted person and she wants her to be a kind-hearted person, etc., etc., etc. So I think that there's this really interesting tension there between the fact that it's wrong in both scenarios, right? Like, it's wrong for the community to be so, especially the kids, to be so brutal to this kid. Yeah. But it's also wrong to expect this one girl to have to, like, go make it better for him, you know? Yeah. 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 That's all. I just wanted to bring it up because I want our listeners to be aware of that, I guess. I think that's something we need to be aware of. Um, yeah, and it's not just the kids, too. Like, it's the grown-ups that are also awful to him. Like, as oh, he yeah. is still a child, there th- since the sun goes away, there is a council formed to kind of figure out ways to get the sun back. And there's- Which include human sacrifice, for the record. Yeah, it includes human sacrifice. So there are multiple times where they try to convince people to sacrifice Joshua, which I don't think happens in this section, but I could be wrong. <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, the the sections are broken up for in like purposeful re- reasons. But it oh no, it is it does happen. It's on two hundred one. It happens. There's like they talk about it at least the sacrifice. Yeah. No, Sorry. no, no. It's all good. I was just gonna say like the sections for, from two to five here are all they very much deal with the same things and stuff. And I think that it's gonna be hard for us to stay in just one section as we move yeah. forward because the story now is just about like. Joshua Hightower and his wife um, and their family, which is really great. But you're right. Yeah, they decide that like one of the ways in which they're going to try to appease the sun god essentially is through human sacrifice. (laughs) And in fact, later in the story, you find out that they really end up succeeding, not with Joshua and Mara, but they wipe out almost the entire rest of the Hightower family. Yes. And part of the reason, at least initially, why they do not sacrifice Joshua while he is still like under 18 is because the miners stand up for him and they won't let, yeah, they won't let them. They all stand and these are big burly men and the council is scared of And I think more important than that, um, on page 200, Mara Hightower puts her foot down. She's not about to let her child be sacrificed. Um, It says from page 200 to 201, Mara Hightower, normally serene and composed, paled. When she spoke, her voice was strong, colored with fury. She said no more Hightower blood would be spilled in service of the sun. She said the spilling of blood could not possibly force the sun to rise. Many people in the gallery started shouting angry slurs. Um, And the scene goes on, but like Mara does not back down. And I think something also important to note about the scene, just because it comes back later in the story, is that it does the corona that's what the like thingy the council is called suggests that it shouldn't just be somebody from the high tower bloodline and if they don't do joshua then they want to sacrifice his firstborn child yeah 
Yep. <laughs> wow. Wowzers. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Mara living in isolation. Can we talk about that? Because I just think that's really sad. It's not necessarily by choice. So a part of when Hir- when Hiram leaves, right, he not only takes away the sun, but he like, and this is why it's such a potent metaphor for suicide, right? He like, he gives uh, some of that darkness to his family in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he, the, the darkness overcomes the world. And now, yeah, so his family, they're both, you know, ostracized in the community. They're grieving. Mara d- never remarries. And it's not necessarily by choice, it says. It says it's because no one will touch her, not even the minors who are kind to her. And I don't know, that idea of, like, a marked woman. What did, what did you make of that? It made me really sad. It was also really, <laughs> like, messed up. I don't know. I I was really struck by the idea that she essentially spends the rest of her life paying for what her husband has done. And I think that also ties into a sense of, of duty to a certain extent. Um, but, like... And, like, it's not even just that, like, she's a kind person, right? Like, she goes out of her way to help anyone who needs help at all. She's, like, trying to find redemption for something that she did not do or cause. And, in fact, tried her best to, like, not cause, you know? And, like, I don't know. I find it really sad that she spends the rest of her days alone. I'm intrigued a little bit, though, because... We don't actually, and this is something about the world, so, like, we never actually leave this town in our world. Mm-hmm. You assume that there is more world out there because, like, the other high towers that get sacrificed come presumably from other places. And it always just really yeah. struck me as um, kind of confusing. I, I was very interested by the choice that she makes to not move her family, which they don't dive into here. But, like, she she stays in the town, you know, where, like, everyone knows her and what she's done. Or, or like, what her husband's done. What's been putting on her as she's done, even though she didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, it makes me wonder a little bit how much of this is, like, her choice and, like, her paying penance, almost. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I mean, and she did... She did know... That he was going to fly the plane into the sun before he did mm-hmm. it. And she knew that, like, that was what he needed, essentially. And so she didn't stop him. She said that, like, she knew there was no stopping him. Yeah, I just more meant in the sense that, like, there was no predicting the actual ramifications of, like, the sun disappearing, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But I wonder, too, if a part of that sense of duty is, like, she feels like because she could never take that darkness away from him, even if she tried, because she couldn't get him to talk. Mm -hmm. So maybe a little bit of that is that, like, Mara is trying, she was trying, it seems at least, to bear Hiram, to bear Hiram's emotional labor, or at least part of it, and he wouldn't let her. And I don't know, that's a really interesting concept, I think. Like, I guess... I feel as though it's my responsibility to bear my own emotional labor, but I do also really rely on support from family and friends and partners and things like that. So I wonder if Roxane Gay is trying to say anything about that. Like, yes, we do need to reach out. I I don't know. What do you, 
I'm quiet, not because I don't have anything to say, but because I'm trying to form my thoughts. Yeah, I think so. I think that, like, there's this really... I think it's a commentary potentially on the ways in which that we, like, can support those who are in need in our lives and, like, where the line is for our own personal sanity in those ventures. But I think that, like, a lot of things in this story, like, there's no clear-cut answer to that, you know? Like, it's just kind of brought up as a thing that, like does Mara take on too much? You know? Like, does she take on too much for Hiram? Um, Should she have moved? Like, what? I don't know. That's my answer. I don't know. But I think that, I think that you're not supposed to know. I think it's just supposed to make you think. I don't think that there are... All of my notes for this story are questions, essentially. Because I think that this (laughs) is a story that's supposed to raise a lot of questions and, like, purposefully does not give a ton of answers. I agree. And I think... If you have thought about this and you have something you want to add and you want to tell us, email us. Or send us wanna... a voicemail. Or send us a voicemail. It's very easy. All you have to do is click on the little button when we send you the anchor link. There's a little button that you can use from your phone and you don't even have to have anchor. Moving on. <laughs> oh, one of the things, I don't, it's not very big, but on 197, it talks about uh, losing the brown in their skin. And both the stories we had, I had kind of assumed were about white people. And I just thought it was, it, because it's a, it's a blue collar rural town, so it makes sense. But I do wonder if these characters are darker skinned and if that changes anything. I think it's definitely more racially ambiguous for that sense, but also could just imply that like they lost their tan, like the mm. farmer's tan sort of deal. I don't know. I think it does change things. Especially if you consider uh, who in this community could potentially be a person of color versus who isn't and things like that. But I think it's kind of hard to say because the story is, again, pretty racially ambiguous. Like, it's pretty clear in Noble Things that, like, we're talking about white people, you know? Yes, because even though it's never directly... Well, no, it's at one point in Noble Things, they say that people left the South because they loved too many brown-skinned people or something like that. Yeah, so, but, like, here it's not quite as stated, and I think that it plays a a role, I think, in the intersectionality of of this story, but it's not super deeply explored beyond that, um, beyond this, like, mention, you know? Yeah, I just thought it was a cool little tidbit. Okay, what about, let's talk about desire versus romance versus love versus marriage, Wow, Maggie. (laughs) On page 204. (laughs) So this is the scene. The second part of the story deals when uh, Joshua and the main character are, like, kids, essentially. And so, like, they're in, like, this very puppy love sort of statement. Um, And then part three is when they're actually adults and together. And so this whole scene is when Joshua asks her to marry him. And I thought it was really intriguing because it starts off with, like this very romantic scene they're in an observatory they're looking at the stars and then it moves into a very sexy scene where we talk a lot about desire and how like she loves him very deeply okay so yes he made his claim and then his hands start shaking yeah, I don't know. Roxanne Gay loves uh, that sort of, like, 
it seems, <laughs> from her writing. And that's fine. Everyone has their kinks. But, you know, recognize that this is an all-woman. She loves that sort of dynamic in which a masculine figure is being, like, sexually aggressive or, or is aggressive in bed. And the woman is, like, a more gentler, submissive figure. And then, yeah, all of a sudden it kind of, so that's kind of how their sexy times start, it seems. Mm -hmm. Joshua is making his claim on her, and then all of a sudden he gets nervous and his hands start shaking, and she kind of becomes the person in power. We deal with a lot of heteronormative power dynamics in these stories, which isn't always bad, but something to look out for. But yeah, she ends up as the person in power. Because she insists that he tells her what it is he's thinking, even though she kind of knows that he's going to ask her to marry him. I think the point that I was trying to make here, because now that you're talking, I've had a chance to really gather my thoughts a little bit more, is that something there's something interesting to me about this scene. Because we start with like a very romantic moment, then we move into a sexy moment, and then we move back out a little bit into like a more romantic moment. And in the middle of that romantic moment when he, like, asks her to marry him and they're, like, having sex and stuff, after that, we go into, like, this reflection on what love is. So on page 206, it says... We learned to love the different kind of light at night, the pale blue of it. and the moonlight, the world felt purer. Making peace with the world and its black days was the only way to find any kind of happiness. What we all wanted even more than the sun was a little peace to hold in our hands and our hearts. So, like, we move on to, like, this idea of what love is. But we end the story with, like, or we end this part of the story with a thought. They get married. And the thought here is kind of that, like, marriage is a little bit different than all of that. Because we end by saying... So, like, it's a description of the wedding. My husband and I married on the lawn outside the observatory in the middle of the night. My parents and his mother and a preacher stood with us. I wore the pink ribbon, mostly worn to a thin shine, braided through my hair, and a long white dress, no sleeves, a dress that swirled around my legs when I walked. Joshua wore his best suit, a fine cut with clean lines. We exchanged promises that were long ago made, however unspoken, and have always been kept. I thought that that was really interesting because it seemed to me that, like, we end on this thought that, like, back on duty, right? Like, marriage is actually, it's all of those things, right? There needs to be romance and love and desire and whatever, but, like, deep down, what a marriage is is separate from all of that a little bit because it's about this deep trust that the person you're with is going to, like, keep your promises and, I think, keep your secrets and all of that. And I thought it was just a really interesting way to frame this whole scene because we see like these four different things come together in their marriage but gay makes them seem kind of distinct also because they're broken down into pretty distinct parts within this like scene that's really interesting what do you make of the part where she says unspoken that their promises are unspoken do you think that relates at all back to hear him I think it does a little bit. I think I read it more as the idea that it was unspoken in the moment that like when you've been with someone for a really, really long time, like you don't necessarily need to like continually be like 
like reaffirm the fact that trust is there yeah right like it's just kind of there and you don't necessarily need to talk about it constantly Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the more the way that I read it and I also kind of read it as sort of a cliche where it's like you know when you understand someone so deeply you know you don't need to which I think is in the scene in other places in the sense that like she knew what he was about to do he she knew he was going to propose and everything excuse me but it does talk about how the promises were made long ago so there's sort of an implication that it was never talked about and I do think I don't know I think that's important to note because I think that we do see that Hiram stopped talking, right? And Mm -hmm. maybe it could just be a part of this cliched sort of trope and like the sort of feeling that gay is going for. And maybe it's my bias as someone who over talks about almost everything. Because in your example, that trust, it sounds like at least in relationships is like talked about in the beginning and then just stops being talked about. Whereas this one's like, I'm going to help you bear this emotional labor, even though we've never actually talked about me being here to bear your emotional labor, which can be kind of sweet. I think that that's fair, but I also think that, like, there is, and we see at the end of the book, like, Joshua also helps her. Yeah. Like, it's it's not just a one-way street here. I do want to make that clear. Because, like, yes, I totally agree that she does, like, bear the brunt of his emotional labor. But it's not like he's emotionally useless throughout this story. No, either. and it's not like he's not doing anything. He is. She's just, she's there helping him of her own volition and will. But I think that's a part of the implication here. That they're not speaking about it, but she's like... I'm going to be your partner kind of from the beginning, right? No one else is going to be kind to you, but I'm going to be kind to you, Joshua Hightower. Yeah. But she doesn't ever say that. Which is interesting because she makes him say it to her on page 205. Yeah. Uh, I mean to marry you. Are you going to be good to me? His brow furrowed as he nodded. How could you ask that? I traced his lower lip with my thumb. Promise me you won't do something that would take you away from me or that would change the world as we know it now. And then they get into a conversation about the fact that, like, he's not his father, whatever. Yeah, interesting. So, like, she does, like, she makes him promise things that, like, we don't actually see her reciprocate through words in the story we only see it through actions yeah and i think that's also a really i was really intrigued by the place that she put this because when you get married you know you exchange vows typically and things like that like you literally stand up there and promise people things you know in front of uh, a crowd no matter how big or small like it has to be like these promises have to be witnessed so i thought it was very it was a weird kind of place to put this idea about the fact that like the most important promises we make to our loved ones are sometimes the ones that we have trouble saying out loud yeah huh that's interesting okay let's see what else do we want to do oh (laughs) maggie wrote i'm gonna read it all for you guys happy depictions of motherhood rp cool and then (laughs) the next thing says jesus christ this section is sad Oh, yeah, I think I actually almost cried a lot while reading this too. It's a 
such a beautiful story. Everyone should read it. Yeah, so right after they get married, almost, like, immediately, the next thing we see is that she has a tiny, unknowable creature stirring in her womb from the beginning. And there's a new life between us. Here, I'll read it. I'll read it. There was a new life between us. I felt that tiny, unknowable creature stirring in my womb from the beginning. That's all. Yeah. (laughs) She just, like, she's very excited about it, and, like, they are both very excited about it. And I thought it was just a really nice thing to, like, see this depiction of this couple who want this baby so badly and they are so excited about it we talked about a little bit in the witches of new york about motherhood a little bit and about how pregnancy can be really 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 tough and difficult for women and that it's not talked about a lot but i think that there are certain emotional implications of being a mother that like we talk a lot about sort of the negative and draining things about it and i just thought it was really nice in this story to see this moment of like pure joy and connection between these two characters about the fact that they're having a baby you know i just i it felt so pure to read about because (laughs) and i also really appreciate it i appreciated it because it was it also shows like a very happy description of fatherhood right which i think we don't see very often either and i think that here we see a lot of shared emotional labor to talk about that so like on 208 when she tells him it says we talked of how we would love our child how we already loved our child we laughed and laughed our voices rising through the small room when we emerged from the cooling water my husband wrapped me in a soft towel and carried me to our bed we made love we were not gentle but we were gentle all of this is about them as a unit kind of dealing with all of this joy and then with also the kickback like this is where i think we really see in the story joshua helping her carry some emotional labor because they're very scared with good reason which i'm sure we'll talk about in a second about how the community is going to react to the fact that she's pregnant and so she has to like hide this thing that she is so excited about and it's like it's difficult you know because it was it's difficult to contain that kind of joy when you just want to like shout it out to the world Yeah, I agree. I'm going to read that section real quick. My husband and I tried to hide the growing swell of my belly as long as we could. We kept to ourselves more than ever. The townspeople would not welcome a single moment of happiness from anyone sharing the blood of Hiram Hightower. So I think, I, I agree. I think it's difficult for them, but I also... I guess unrelated to that, I, I also think, like, the reason why this scene is so great and so beautiful in part is because they're choosing to create life and choosing to, like, create a family and do something that they view as positive despite the rest of the, despite the adversity that they're facing and despite the miserableness that it seems to be going on from the rest of the world and the outside world. If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think that also some of the brilliance of the scene is how scary and sad the next scene is. They're walking around town together and it's, it has become obvious that she's pregnant, right? Like they can't hide it anymore. Um, Whether because she's just 
grown like physically obviously pregnant or as the story says it was difficult to contain the sharp line of joy binding us even more tightly together like it was just it's hard to hide the air of joy when you're really feeling it and they encounter a man who doesn't really seem to realize that she's pregnant when it happens but he is taunting joshua he calls him the son of a sun stealer and that's clever yeah and he either like pushes her or trips her yeah um so i guess trigger warning like we're about to talk about a little bit of of violence here and and scare of miscarriage Mm mm-hmm I didn't see the petty cruelty coming. I fell hard, could feel where bruises would form on my knees and thighs elsewhere. As I fell, I stared at Joshua with wide open eyes, reached for him, but even though we tried, our fingers never quite met. I thought, my baby, my baby, my baby, but everything happened too fast for me to think clearly beyond the terrible understanding of what we might lose. I hit the ground, slick with frost, and held my arms over my stomach. Everything ached, and it hurt to breathe, and there was a tight cramping between my legs. I tried to stand, but fell again, this time hitting my head. The world blurred. So right after that, what we see happen is Joshua goes into, like, angry, fury, man mode. And she's trying to, like, she's here needing his help. But he is so consumed with rage at this man that he is not immediately able to help her. Did you pick up on that? Mm Mm-hmm. I did. She has to stop him from killing him, like, quite literally. Yeah. Is there something else that you want to talk about with the miscarriage before we dive into that? Because that I want to unpack. <laughs> well, I think that it's, I think it's at the end of the scene on page 210. It's, we have to note the fact that, like, the man does not, does not know that she's pregnant. Yeah. Um, when he hurts her. Joshua lifted that small, unfortunate man high into the air and shook him like he was trying to make the man into someone better. She's pregnant, my husband shouted. How dare you? And then we move into this thing where she's like, she's trying to focus. She stretches her arm. She touches him. She says, we need you. And that's when he like releases the rage in the man and things like that. And I think that that aspect ties in nicely to the point that you're about to make. Yeah, I just... I think we see Joshua, even though he's a great character and we love him, like succumb to toxic masculinity and it's really harmful because they are here and she has to literally beg him to let go of her anger, his anger at this man who is committing the crime and instead to care for her. And I think it's important because this family we see almost universally like doing the classy, the right thing, except for at this moment. And I just, it's just something, it's something we see a lot with male tropes and archetypes. Like superheroes will always go after revenge rather than fixing the problem at hand. And I just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a very toxically masculine thing and I don't understand it. And um, I guess it's important that he doesn't kill the man. And I, I think it's important that she put it in there that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think something that's also worth talking about here is that 
which is also potentially kind of problematic is that right after that happens and he takes her into the infirmary she is looking for that kind of physical protection again mm-hmm. she says i am so cold don't let anything happen to me and he, she's looking for that kind of physical protection right afterwards so like there's there's a sense almost that like this emotional and physical protection are, are really closely intertwined and kind of confused in this scene about what needs to be happening when um, yeah. i think something that we should also talk about is the the fact that she's pregnant changes this assault and what that kind of says about our society about yeah. the fact that like it's it's <laughs> it's okay to trip a woman just not a pregnant woman i mean like yeah it sucks you shouldn't trip a pregnant woman but it's also like oh you you only have value if you're carrying another life which is even sh- more sharply shown in this scene just due to the fact that like she because of who she married she carries even less value to like the society at large oh my god yeah wow so it's not even like her value it's the value of her husband yeah and like it's just this very messed up societal thing wrapped in the fact that like she really wants this baby and the idea of miscarriage like would be really devastating for both of them well yeah obviously i just yeah the whole scene is it's just i think it's hard to read because like you get you feel really angry about like this idea of of like her value being tied up in the the baby and the husband but then you also contend with the fact that like a lot of her i don't want to say value right now but like her mental and emotional state is also focused on the baby because she wants it so badly well yeah so like we see these two readings of it I guess. And one is intensely negative and one isn't. No, I think they, I think they're both pretty negative, honestly. I, I mean, I, cause yes, you're endangering the life of a child and she is a mother who wants to be a mother. And so of course she's going to love her child and like not want anything bad to happen to it. And I think that's perfectly valid. I think that we can see that and accept that and still recognize that this man committed violence against her. And that the two men who kind of have more agency in this situation because they are not the ones in pain and they are not the ones struggling are valuing the life of somebody else other than her. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. I don't think those things are at odds with one another. Like, I think that we can read it both. I think we can feel sympathy for her and sympathy for the child and also be angry at the men. Who I think in this case deserve that anger. But not just, but I think Joshua too, not just the, the man who trips her. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah, you're saying my point in a different way, which maybe it makes more sense that way. But yes, I totally agree with what you're saying. That was what I was also trying okay. to say. Okay. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really made me angry while I was reading it because, yeah, you feel so much sympathy and, like, as a reader, you really feel scared for her when she is scared and stuff like that. But then, like, you think about it and you're like, my God, these two men just need to, like, fuck (laughs) off for different reasons, you know? Because Joshua should have thought (sighs) of her first and obviously the dude who tripped her shouldn't have fucking tripped her in the first place whether or not she was pregnant, you know? Yeah, and, like, even if Joshua is, I mean, who also deserves the right to value the life of his child, right? Like, this is a consensual thing that they have both agreed to. Like, he's still not helping the unborn child by focusing on his rage. Yeah, for sure. It was He's being really selfish for sure. in that aspect. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
Do we want to talk about the fact that our narrator has no name? Because now that you've pointed that out, I think it's really interesting and worth talking about. Yeah, it really, I it, both times I read the story, it really stuck out to me. And I don't know how I feel about it because on the one hand, I, I'm like really over this idea of like the nameless woman telling other people's stories. But like on the other hand, I feel like in this story, it kind of works a little bit. Because she's not, she's, she isn't just telling someone else's story. The core of the story is her and her husband's story as they're trying to face this adversity together. But, like, at the same time, like, would it really have been that hard to give her a fucking name? You know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I do. I feel conflicted about I, it. I do think it's kind of personal. Like, a personal, I, I think it must be a deliberate choice that Gaia is making. I don't know, I can't speak for Gaia, so I don't know specifically why she's making it, but it does seem to be a, it does seem like a deliberate choice because it would have been easy to just give her a name. And especially because that isn't a problem that any of the other stories in this collection face either. Like, this is unique. Yeah. So maybe she's playing to a certain type of form, but maybe we're not, well, maybe you are, I don't know, that at least I'm not as um, aware of. And maybe that's what, like, I'm not getting the commentary on it. Or maybe it's deliberately, like, the woman who is telling the story trying to make it less about herself. I don't know. I I don't know. It reminds me a little bit. I have read other stories told with first-person narrators uh, that don't have names. Um, Like, I'm trying to think. But they're very, very different from this one. Like, oh, crap. What's it called? (laughs) Anyways, those stories are very, very different than the story that we're reading now. I think that the idea that if she's trying to make that she's trying to make it less about herself has potentially some merit, but I also don't know just because like she very much she's a big character in the story and it's told from her perspective and she never tries to pull herself and her contributions to this story back in any ways. So, like, I don't necessarily know if it's that. May I? So, we don't know whether or not she took her husband's last name, but maybe there's some sort of idea being played in there and that she's becoming, because I don't think we ever learned what her mother's name is either. So maybe it's like she is deliberately becoming one of the high towers. Yeah. And maybe that's why it's more important because we don't get anyone's names, I think, in this story except for the high towers. Yes, that's true. They're the only named characters. I don't know. I think maybe that could be part of it. I, that's going to be my working theory from now on. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, but like I said, I think that this choice really works in the story. Partially yeah. because one of the great strengths of this story for me is the fact that I feel like you can really step into this character. Like the distance between you and that character is not very far. You really feel what she's feeling. And generally speaking... Like, as a craft thing, I guess, that tends, like, that not naming a character is a good way to decrease the distance between the reader and the character, because then you can really just, like, picture yourself in their shoes. So maybe it was that sort of situation. Yeah, that would be a good, do you have anything else that you want to say about the not naming? No, I don't think so. Let's talk about, so you have on section six, I'm going to read out, uh, I think this is Maggie's notes, yeah, Rich. Oh, five, right. I can read Roman numerals. Rich dudes continue to try and control the lives of others, even in more overt ways than before. That is Maggie's note. Yeah, because the section five opens uh, with... Our daughter was born in the brightest space of the night early in the new year. We named her Dawn. 
Upon hearing of her birth, for we were watched, the corona convened, but because she was a girl, they decreed she would be spared. They had no say in the matter, none at all. So, like, it just really struck me that, like, they are trying to make this decision for totally dumb reasons, even though it's a decision that never would have been allowed by the two people who actually matter in that, you know? Um, yeah. No, it's just frustrating. <laughs> it is frustrating. Um, what I liked about this last section is that they do have a child named John who's born at the brightest time of the night, and it is her birth that's implied. And almost actually, it's kind of outright stated that starts increasing the light in the world. Mm -hmm. And I just, it's just, it's such a beautiful ending. Like they made, they were brave enough. And I think that, okay, so I can't speak for gay, right? But I think that this is really important because this story, this entire book deals with stories of oppression in some fashion, right? And we are talking about capitalism very directly here, right? And we're talking about the life of like blue collar workers and it's just, it's really, I think it's very deliberate that she's having these two characters who have faced such adversity choose to be happy and that their happiness does better things for the world. And I think that that could potentially like be a commentary on Gay's struggle with adversity, right? Like maybe she's telling that to her readers. Yeah. It's a very beautiful ending. Like, this book, this story goes through to such dark places, both literally and metaphorically. And, like, we end in such a beautiful place. But I think another important thing to note going along that, because I think that that theory is totally correct, but it's also important to know that, like, your happiness can make the world better and adversity will still continue. Um, because we end the the very last, like, three paragraphs of this story on page 213. A woman walked up to me, not much older than I, a woman who had, like me, known the warmth of the sun as a young girl. She was thin and pale and seemed unfamiliar with joy. I held Dawn more tightly. My child cooed and I smiled wider. This woman looked at me and my happy child and my happy husband, who stopped his silly dance and made his way toward us with a careful look in his eye. The woman looked up into the dark sky that was not as dark as it had, as it once was. She pointed at my daughter with a long, skinny finger. Was your child's life worth a lifetime of darkness? I understood her anger, which was not so much anger as it was sorrow. I wanted to tell her what we did not dare speak, that what was once the sun might once again become the sun. I wanted to tell her the sky lightened to the day my perfect child was born, that, and that with time, the world would be bright again. I studied this woman and considered what penance I might offer her as we stood in the cool absence of light. Instead of speaking, I remained silent. Words cannot fill the faithless with faith. I looked into my daughter's eyes. There is nothing brighter. I guess it's really hard for me to diverse that, knowing who gay is and knowing the context this this book not this story necessarily but this book was published in 2017 i believe Mm -hmm. after we have gone through the trump presidency i know i'm talking a lot about trump but y'all just have to deal with it i mean it's a feminist podcast this is the world we're living in anyway and we do see a rise in hate crimes and things like that and gay is a black woman 
And she has faced a lot of adversity. And I just, there's always going to be people out there who hate you for being happy and hate you for no reason that you can control. I thought something really interesting and something that really confused me, frankly, was the ending part where it talks about words cannot fill the faithless with faith. And like, I I guess I just found that interesting because faith to me was not a theme that I really saw throughout this story, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But clearly it was meant to be because like, otherwise, why would we end there, you know? And is it like, is it just, is it faith in yourself? Is it faith in your happiness? Is it faith that like the world is going to get better? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I read it. I read it as optimism, right? Like, I don't read it as necessarily capital F faith or, like, a prescription to any sort of spiritual beliefs. But, yeah, I I read it as, like, this narrator always chose to look at the world, like, to look at what she had and to be grateful for Mm -hmm. it and to have faith that she was going to be okay and faith that her husband was going to be okay. Cause that was a big thing too. Right. We kind of skipped over this part, but there was a part in which uh, Joshua like slit his own wrists at a Corona or meeting. Tried to. She stopped him. I think. Yeah. 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 He tried to. So like there was still, he, he, you know, he had some of that cyclical depression. Yeah. So I think that it was just kind of, faith that they were going to make it out okay, even though the sun was gone. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, not that, like, we can always choose to be happy, right? Because that's not true. And a lot of people do struggle with that. And there is a ton of adversity. And it's okay to feel emotions. And it's okay to be sad and to have dark or uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, but this has a very hopeful end. It does. And I think that, like, her hopefulness is radical. I think as is her refusal to respond to the woman anymore and to just, like, be like, there's nothing I can say that's going to change your mind. So, like, I'm done having this stupid argument over and over again. You know, like, I nothing I can say is going to make you feel more optimistic about the world. Exactly. And her world has gotten better. Maybe not the entire world, but the world, it's implied in the story that the world is getting better simply by her, like, her her insistence on feeling joy yeah. and her insistence on creating her own joy and being a happy person like that is a radical act yeah. and i think that like at the time that this has been published and at the time that we are at like that's just so meaningful to me <sighs> i agree i don't know it's just a very i don't know we keep saying it but it's just like a beautiful story <laughs> please go read this story it's so good Read the whole book. <laughs> yeah, for sure, read the whole book. But, like, if you really need a moment of just, like, feeling optimism and joy, read this story specifically. Yes. But also sadness, because you're going to feel some sadness. you got to wade through the sad to get to the, to get to the joy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you want to... S- are you done? I'm done. I was, I was literally just going to ask you if we're... If okay. We're, I think we are. Okay. So, I wanted to ask you, um, I know that through these... Well... First of all, let's let's go story by story. Do you think that each of these stories were feminist stories? Oh, you mean the three that we talked about? Yes. Yeah, so noble things. We talked about open relationship for a little bit, and now we're talking about uh, something about darkness. <laughs> Sacrifice of darkness. I'm sorry, Roxanne Gay. I promise I read your book. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it's like, I think it's kind of hard to say, especially because Roxanne Gay also wrote the book Bad Feminist, which is like a commentary on what it means to be a feminist. So like, I kind of want to say yes, that like, even though all of these stories show very different, like 
relationships and as we've talked about like the parts of this book really subscribe to like some problematic cisgender heteronormative like relationship things like i think that all of these stories show strong women who are trying their best to like fight for what they believe in i think that it's a harder sell with noble things for sure uh just because of like the content of it but like i think that even if the characters themselves aren't feminist the story still is because it's a commentary on all of those kind of like traditional non-feminist ideas if that makes sense i agree i do think that the book as a whole tends to be relationship focused and it tends to be focused on male-female relationships. And I do think that it's interesting to note that the three stories we read, at least, did not pass the Bechdel test, which, for those who might not know, is a test that was developed some time ago in relation to movies, which essentially states that, like, a, a movie can pass this test for having, I don't know, some, like, being valuable to females or something like that if they have two or more female characters in a conversation with each other with about anything aside from a man, a man and a lot of things do not pass that test. So I have a complicated relationship with it. I think that it's valuable and I think that it promotes good ideas and values. And I think that Roxanne Gay's voice is one that we need to hear and that people should definitely read this book. I'm not sure if I would define it specifically as feminist, because even though it's showcasing strong women, I don't think that it's, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that it's like, I don't know if it's necessary. Well, I guess it kind of, I don't know if it's necessarily pushing boundaries on gender equality in particular. Like, I think it's an important and valuable book that everyone should read if they get the chance, and that all these stories and voices are valuable, and that a lot of them are radical. I'm not sure if it can be defined as feminist, though. I'm looking in the back of the book, in my edition at least, there's an interview with Roxane Gay, and she says on page 298, um, Certainly I am challenging the traditional idea of a, quote, difficult woman, unquote, much in the same way I challenge traditional notions of feminism with the phrase, quote, bad feminist, unquote. There are all kinds of intersections at play here. I don't have any prescriptions for how fans of my work should approach, of my other work should approach difficult women, other than to read the stories with an open mind and an open heart and to recognize that as a writer, I contain multitudes and a very dark imagination. Um, which I think is actually kind of interesting because I think that, like, there's this idea here that like maybe like i don't know i think that a lot of people think of roxanne gay as being like a very feminist writer and like i think that that point at the very least implies at at the very least that like while she's here it's not about that yeah like (laughs) bad feminist certainly was obviously like that was the whole point of the book yeah but like this guy's got different things going on i think that there are and that's okay (laughs) yeah and i think that there are some stories in here that are really feminist i think that this book has a lot of value in looking at like very real depictions of the lives of women around the yes. United States specifically. Yes. Um, whether or not they're like living the wokest life ever, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I just, I don't think it's necessarily about feminism in particular, but it does do a really good job of exploring relationship dynamics. It does a really good job of exploring the lives of women across the U.S. Mm -hmm. 
all sorts of people. It's a fantastic story. Um, I mean, it has fantastic stories and a lot of them are radical in nature. I think it's hard to say as an overview because some of them do. I think some of them are feminist stories and some of them aren't, right? Like, and I think that the three that we looked at specifically could probably be considered feminist again, regardless of whether it's like the characters or because it's like very clearly a critique on what's happening in that society. Um, yeah, but yeah. Not every not every story in this collection falls into that, but I think that also makes it a more like just from a purely reading perspective, a little bit more interesting because you really have to think about what's happening in each story and like what the point of view of the characters are, and like I would also say that like this story is one where it's really important to remember that the attitudes of characters are not the attitudes of the author and that like the author is just like I think especially this is something else she talks about briefly in the interview at the back of the book but like she's so known for being like a feminist author and like so known for her nonfiction specifically and she's written a really open and intense memoir about like her life essentially that it's really easy for people to just be like oh well clearly her fiction is still just like this thinly veiled autobiography and like no like not this one (laughs) no so like i think it's just important to also put that out there that like just because not every story in this is potentially like a feminist story like doesn't mean that Roxane Gay is less of a feminist or anything either, you know? No. I'm not trying to say I'm not that. I just think it's important. I'm not saying you are. I just wanted to, like, put it out there as, like, a side note. Yeah, I agree. Okay, um, do we have homework for The Sacrifice of Darkness? I don't actually know if I have homework for The Sacrifice of Darkness this time, just because I... I don't know. Vote for someone who's gonna help the middle class. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and not just the middle class, but the working class too and below the working class, people who are underneath the poverty yeah, line. Yeah, people who are That's all important. People who are really thinking about like class division in the United States. Yes. Yeah. I think my homework is going to be to like be radically happy. I mean not you don't just be happy, right? I get that that's hard. I mean, but yeah, like choose to find things that make you more comfortable in life and that bring you some sort of joy. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to be happy, and you shouldn't feel guilty about it. I think that's good homework. I really like that <laughs> Okay. Um, what are you reading right now, Harmony? <laughs> what am I reading right now? Uh, I'm still reading uh, the, the Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange, or Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, primarily right now. That's fair. That's what a really long book. I'm reading <laughs> uh, I'm reading Little Woman by Louisa May Alcott and Dragon Keeper by Robin Hobb. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about that in one of our guest sodes. Okay. Let's see. I guess that's that's it. Oh, right. No, we're not going on a break. We already went on that. Before we stop recording, though. Okay. Oh, we also have to Let's talk see. about what they're listening to next time. But I guess we don't really know yet, so never mind. Yeah. We're going to have something Halloween-y for you. Yeah. <laughs> With guests. Uh... Yeah, with guests. It's not going to be a book episode. We're giving you a break from a book episode. And the next episode that we have, I think we'll tell you what the book is so that you get a chance to obtain it, maybe, if you want to, and read along with us. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly 
and it's by the days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.